0: Revelation 4, verses 1 to 11. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, in 2 Kings, there's a story. And the story is a historical event that happened in the 9th century, B.C. And if you know anything about the ancient world, you know that borders for nations were very fluid, always changing. And this is one of those instances where the Arameans, who we call in the Bible, it'll say Syria, but it's really the Hebrew word is always Aram, which means the Arameans. We call them Syria because it's easier for you as modern people to think Syria than to think of a whole different people. So the Syrians are fighting Israel. But the king of Syria is frustrated because every time he brings his army to, to combat the Israelites, he finds it's, it's almost like they've um, anticipated what he's going to do. And so he gets very frustrated. He says, what's going on? How do they seem to know what we're going to do? And somebody tells him, they've got this prophet named Elisha. And Elisha, is uh, he's, he's tipping them off. So the king of Syria gets upset, and he says, I'm going to send an army to surround the city where he is, and they're going to um, uh, take him captive. We're going to take Elisha captive. So they send this army, and they surround the city. And as they're doing so, the servant of Elisha looks out, and he is terrified. He is shaking in his boots, proverbially, sandals, and he doesn't know what to do. He's, going to, he's floundering. And so Elisha prays this, O oh Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. Then, right after that, we hear this. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so, what we are seeing here is this. If that servant is going to endure through this trial, he must have different eyes. He has to see what is really happening as opposed to what he feels is happening. Because otherwise, he's just not going to make it. He's not going to survive. And it is not by accident that in the book of Revelation, the second most common phrase that you hear repeated is the phrase, fear not. But the first most common is, behold. If you are ever going to fear not, you must behold. And Revelation is saying, look, behold what I'm showing you. If you want to fear not, you must see as I see. You must see what's really happening, not what you think is happening, what your emotions tell you, what the culture is telling you. And so this is why um, commentators often say Revelation 4 seems to be providing us with a set of glasses, spectacles. And if you've ever had glasses, it doesn't matter if they're corrective or sunglasses, you know they change your perspective. It takes a blurry world and brings it into focus. It takes a sunny world and blocks out the sun that is keeping you from seeing things the way they are so you can see through that light. Or even if you're colorblind, you're seeing the world as it is. And so Revelation comes and says, try these on. Try these glasses on. See the world through the lens of chapter 4. And this worship comes at this point because if you are not a worshiper, you will not overcome. You must be a worshiper if you're going to overcome. And so here we get this recalibration of Revelation 4 that says, here's what is actually going on. Here's the way the world is, and it shows us something radical. Because that servant of Elisha, the terminology gets, can get you in trouble, but it's the right wording. He is worshiping the enemy when he is afraid. By that I mean he is allowing something other than God to dictate what he thinks and what he does and what he believes. And that is worship, even if there's no ritual. Stop think, let's not think about ritual as being the sole part of worship. Worship is something that's central to your life, as we're going to see. And this passage recalibrates, refocuses, and says that there's this God. And it reveals to us the perspective that this God is central in our lives, worthy of our praise, and ours forever. Or, and say, let's say, let's use that to change that third one. Let's say this, God is central in our lives. He is worthy of our praise, and he is better than any other center we try to put at the center of us, anything else we try to worship, okay? So let's, let's go with those three. Central, Worthy, and Better. So let's start with Central. There was this um, American writer. He Unfortunately, he committed suicide in, I think, 2008. His name was David Foster Wallace, and he was renowned for the short time he was around. And he wrote a book called Infinite Jest, which is, again, radically popular. And he's not a Christian, but one day he's speaking at Kenyon College in Ohio, and he's giving a commencement speech. And here is what he says. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never, be, you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Now, not a Christian, and this is a highly controversial statement in the world, because he is saying, listen, he was not a believer, but he said, I understand why people do this, because you must worship something. Everybody has something that, is, that they live for, something that's the center of their life. It could be work, it could be family, it could just be, as friends of mine say things like, my religion is decency. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever it is, there's always something at you, the center of your life, every human being. And there's something you work to achieve, everyone. Something that you fear when it is threatened, something that you get angry when it is blocked, and something that you despair of when it's lost. It's that thing in your life, whatever it is, that you think, when I have it, then I've got everything. But when I lose it, I have nothing. And everybody has something. They all, we all worship. And so Wallace is right. Everything he's saying is accurate. And he says, you know, money is never enough, all these things. I mean, think about family. It's right that we love our family. But your family, parents, you have to let your kids go at some point. Don't hound your daughters and your husbands. Because they have to be husbands and daughters and parents. They can't be your little toys forever. Right? They must be their own people. Because if you don't, you're going to smother. See, if you make the kids the center of your life, you will smother them. You'll smother them. Or you'll make them something that they're not meant to be. Or you'll be disappointed when they say, stop it, let me go. Or you'll be disappointed when they leave. And listen, who hasn't had this happen? Your kids get married, and then, isn't it normal? I'm gonna, this is a Carl, not a, not, no statistic. Doesn't it feel like when a son leaves and marries a girl, he gets connected more to her family than to you, right? There's always one family that they they hang out with a little bit more for whatever reason. And even if your life goes perfectly and your kids turn out like little perfect angels just like you and you feel very proud, you know, um, I'm always laughing. (laughs) Does that never happen? But even if it does, even if you have a a charmed life, do you know what's going to happen? says, Wallace, you're going to die. Something will break your confidence. You will lose everyone. And so, what do we do with that? We have to worship something. And so here then flows in revelation that says, the center of your life is not meant to be anything but God. And it shows us this in such incredible ways. So first it shows us that he is the center, and then it's going to show us why he's the center, and then why he's the better center. So let me show you first by drawing a picture, literally, of what this throne room scene that John sees is. He sees this first. He walks in, well, walks in, he shows up, he's in this vision. And just so you know, when the, when the chapter starts, it says, After this. That's a key to you that it's a new vision. Same long vision of Revelation, but a new thing is happening after the letters. And the first thing he sees is a throne. And seated on the throne is someone that is red, carnelian, and jasper, which, if you know it, is like an or, dark, a deep orangey red stone. So he sees this being. I'll explain all the symbolism in the next point. Let me just talk about geography here first. So he sees this. The next thing he sees is this rainbow over the throne. That's green. It's emerald. Then, after that, he sees 24 elders surrounding the throne. There are 24. I counted. And they're wearing white. And they have golden crowns. Again, we'll talk about what this all means. The next thing we see, lightning. Rumblings, thunder coming from the throne. Okay, then after that there are seven torches of fire. Make no mistake, this is not the churches. He doesn't say lamps; it's a different Hebrew word, a Greek word. Here the word is lampas, as opposed to lichnia, which is you. The church is the lichnia, the lampstands. This is the lampas. This is the the fiery torches, and he says himself in this in the passage are the spirit of God. Seven. Spirits of God is one spirit. The Holy Spirit is there before the throne. Next thing, the sea of glass laid out before this person on the throne. And lastly, these four beings, these four creatures that look like an ox, a lion, a man, and an eagle. And they surround the throne. Before we talk about the imagery of what they all represent, let's make one thing very clear. What's at the center of it? the throne. Everything is focused around the throne. In fact, the word throne shows up in this 11 verses 14 times. Seven times you are told that something is either around or before the throne. Everything, all of what goes on in this heavenly vision, and by relation should be us as well for us believers, everything revolves around the throne. Everything we do is relative to him. He is the focus of all we do. Notice that when they sing, in fact, they don't sing, they say. There were only three instances in Revelation where you actually sing. The rest of the time, they say these praise, praise things. Every word, notice they don't say I in any of it. It's all about God. Everything is God focused. It's almost obsessive in the fact that God is central to everything. So right away, he is putting, he's answering David Foster Wallace and saying, You're right. Everything else will cannibalize you except me. I am at your center. I am the right center. And then, why is he at the center? Well, that's given to us very clearly. The first thing is he's beautiful. When John describes him as being jasper and carnelian, he says he has the appearance of carnelian. That's the same word. It's called the homios in Hebrew or in Greek. And it's the exact same word he's going to use in a few verses to describe this creature looked like a lion. So it's the same word. But they put appearance because it's his physical appearance, I suppose. But John isn't describing it, this is a creature. Or this being is made out of stone. He's saying I'm describing something so beautiful that I can't grasp at it with real words. I don't know how to describe it. So the words he chooses to use are the words for the things that he finds most beautiful and costly in the world, jewels. And so this is a beautiful God. He deserves to be at the center because he's beautiful. And then he goes on. He says and because he's holy. This God is holy, holy, holy. The trisagion, if you know your theology. It's the word hagios. And I've said this to you many a times, but in Hebrew and in Greek, you don't have a lot of emphasis words. So if you want to say something is big, and really big, you'll say it's big, big. So we change it in English to say very big, because it'd be weird to say big, big. So in Daniel, and I've said this to you before as well, when Daniel is thrown into a pit by his brothers, he was thrown not into a very deep pit, he was thrown into a pit pit. When in the the Psalms it says something is of the purest gold, it says it is really gold, gold. But nothing, not only, as far as I know, not only not in the Bible, but not even in any ancient literature of any type is anything ever described with three words in a row, except for God. He is not holy, he's not holy, holy, he's holy, holy, holy. Nothing else is given this, he's so separate, he's so holy that even in Luke, Luke 1, it tells us that his name is holy. And we're not sure, does he mean his name, Yahweh, is holy? Or that his name, his character is so holy that he's actually known as holy. We don't don't know exactly, but both work. So he's holy. So he deserves to be at the center. But he's not just that. He's also Lord and King. Look at those words that he uses. Where am I here? I got to pay more attention. So, Lord God Almighty, Kyrios, Theos, Pantocrator, Pantocrator, Pantocrator in Greek. He is Lord. He is central. He is king of all things. Now, you may not accept his kingship, therefore, you're a rebel. But the reason he's at the center, he says, because not only am I holy, not only am I beautiful, but I am king. Make no mistake, Jesus isn't your best buddy only, he is your Lord. And he's not just there to be uh, helping you along in life. He's your Lord. He's not your personal trainer who comes and tries to make you better. He's your king. And Revelation is rock hard about this idea. It's all scripture is. So we acknowledge that he is sustainer, creator, and it even says all things were made by you. You willed all things. He is everything. So that's why he's at the center. And lastly, though much more can be said, is he's inescapable. And we talked about this in the second sermon in the series. When he says he was, is, and is to come, it means he's inescapable. He was where you, he, you started in him, and you're going to end in him. And because of that, you were made for him. So when he is not at the center of your life, you're going to flounder like that servant before Elijah. You're going to struggle in life because you're not revolving around the right thing. When Louis XIV, the, uh, the 14th French king who is known as the Sun King, because he was likened to Apollo. He was one of the greatest kings in the human sense, historical sense ever. He ruled for 72 years. He had incredible wealth. He owned the Hope Diamond, so if you've watched Titanic, you know what that is. Um, Really wealthy. People thought he could heal the sick, so he would touch people, you know. He had all this fabulous wealth, and when he died, he's in his casket, and the priest who is doing the service looks at him and sees him in all his finery and his splendor, and he looks at the audience and says, my friends, only God is great. Now, I don't know if, the, I think, I'm assuming he was a Catholic, and I know I'm not a Catholic by any stretch, but he's right. Only God is great. And for that reason, he belongs at the center of all we do. Nobody else. Dale Davis is a uh, New Testament scholar. I like what he says. Listen to this. Our culture does not help us to smash our graven image of the casual God. Our culture proclaims a God must be the essence of tolerance, He is chummy rather than holy, the man upstairs rather than my father for Jesus' sake. So long as our novelty license plates declare that God is my co-pilot, we can be sure that we have not yet seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. God is not a co-pilot. He's not the person we bring into our lives and say, you know, I have a pretty good life, but it would be better if I had God. No, no, no that's not who he is. If you think you're a Christian and you have brought God in to be your personal trainer, your finance help, whatever it is, you are not worshiping the Lord described in Revelation. You're worshiping something else, but it's not him. And that's something that we miss when we don't preach the Old Testament enough, is the New Testament touches on God's holiness all over. It's doing it right now. But the Old Testament is almost irritating at how it hammers you with the holiness of God, it's because we're prone to not seeing him as holy. We're seeing him as chum, as our co-pilot. So, to create a life like this that is, revolves around worship with God at the center, you must behold this scene. If you never acknowledge God as being great, you will never see how weak you are. If you never had a vision of God that made you fall on your face, that's okay, I understand that. But you need that. Because you're, you're never going to think he is quite as big. And we'll, we'll see more at the end until you see that. So first, he is the center. Second, let's move into worthy. He's not just central, but he deserves our praise. And not just our praise, a very specific kind. Uh, I said this to our elders, I think last weekend, we talked about worship. There is a wrong way to worship. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. Your worship can be wrong and anger and frustrate God. I don't care how much you cry it doesn't matter how good you think you are. It's possible that your worship can be not good. And if you don't believe me, look at Cain and Abel, who give offerings to God, and he says it's not acceptable. Look at the letters of Paul where he continually says that this is our right and acceptable worship, meaning there's a wrong way to worship. So not everything that is called worship is worship. That's important to note. And if we're going to get it right and how, what it means to worship, a hint of it is here. When we look at these beings in the story, these elders and these creatures, and see who they are and what they're doing, you begin to see that God is worthy of this specific kind of worship. So let's look at those, those there's the creatures and there's the 24 elders. Let's start with the creatures. The key to understanding the identity of these things is the number. There's four. So in the Bible and ancient literature and all sorts of literature, the number four almost always refers to creation. So, if you're old enough to remember John F. Kennedy Jr., who's alive in when 63 when he died, Anyone? some of you? So JFK, may have, you may know, um, one of the, the theories is he was killed by the CIA. And the reason they have that theory is because he said once in a speech, and I won't do the Boston accent, because I'm going to scatter the CIA to the four winds. So he said, <laughs> And when hes that's pretty good, actually. It's not bad. It's not a bad JFK. So, but he said, I'm going to scatter them to the four winds, meaning to the ends of the earth. What was the symbolism of the four corners of the earth? How many elements are there? Earth, wind, fire, water. Four, four, four. So when these creatures that John resurrects from the vision of Ezekiel, chapter 1, come and there's the wild lion, the domesticated ox, the reasonable man, and the soaring eagle, there's no fish there, you'll notice. Not sure why. But this idea is to say, surrounding the throne is all creation, and it's worshiping God. Not just worshiping God, but they seem to set the rhythm. I mean, I'm, this is a Carlism. I, well, let's keep reading Revelation and see if it, if it plays out. But it is when, in verse 9, when they worship, then the elders fall down in response to creations already worshiping. So they set the tone, all creation around the throne, symbolically worshiping the Lord, which is, of course, what we know. Every knee will bow, all creation. And these 24 elders then, think of the number. How do we know who they are? There's almost no debate here among scholars, anyway, that these 24 elders are the church, the people of God. And the number comes from 12 tribes of Israel and 12 disciples the whole people of God coming together. And if you didn't know that, it's pretty obvious if you've been following along because they're wearing white garments, which Jesus has said you're going to get if you overcome. And they're wearing crowns, which is what you're going to get as an overcomer. You get the Stephanos, the, the, the crown, the victor's crown. So here we have the people of God surrounded, surrounding the throne, worshiping. And they, along with creation, which means everything is worshiping. Now, the sort of worship these, uh, these elders are offering is just incredible. So we're told that they do two things. They, well, much more, but two we'll start with. They throw their crowns down in one act of worship. They cast their crowns. The second thing is they have this song that they, well, they recite. It's more of a doxology where they give him honor, give God honor, glory, and thanks. So let's start with the crowns. What is the crown? So, Again, we've heard it all through the letters. The crown is what you get as a prize for your faithfulness. When It's a symbol of their faithful endurance. So when they say, I'm throwing it down at the feet of God, it's an incredible act of submission. They're saying, we have endured because of our faithfulness, but we know we are only faithful because God called us and made us faithful and by his spirit kept us faithful. Therefore, our faithfulness is his faithfulness to us so they lay it down at his feet. Even the very means by which they got in, they throw at his feet. And then, then they say we're giving God honor and glory, it's thanks we can understand. You can thank God. But how do you and I, creatures, give God, who is glory and holiness, infinitely? How do we give him something? It's like when we say, bless the Lord. What are you blessing him? With what? It's like an ant blessing me. How do you bless me? So what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. We talked a little last week about it. In Psalm 8 and in Hebrews 2, it talks about how God made made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. So by being the very images of God, you are imbibed with this glory and honor, like it or not, because you are the children of the high king. And because of that, you have a degree of honor and glory. And they are saying, even that I lay it. It's all I have. All I have is the faithfulness, honor, and glory you gave me and authority. That's all I have. And I throw it all down at your feet. And so what we are seeing is that a heart, a Christian that is centered with God in the center, her center, is someone who is self-forgetful in worship. They're so self-forgetful that they don't even think to say, I. They don't even think to withhold something from God. It's all laid at his feet, every bit of it. So we're seeing here complete submission of the person to God. This is the kind of worship he is worthy of because of all those things and more we're going to talk about. And for this reason, this proper, this proper lens is the one we should be looking through. This is why only worshipers survive the tribulation. But this is why we're being told continually you have to be this sort of a worshiper if you're going to endure. Endure what? The trials, the tribulation, something. So this is, and this, this, this picture of submission is exactly why This is probably the greatest definition of worship I've ever read. You may have others. There's other good ones. It's by an old archbishop, an Anglican archbishop named um, William Temple. Here's what he says. Worship is a submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for, for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. And in this, he points out the same thing David Foster Wallace as a non-believer does, same thing Revelation points out, that you and I are focused and always centered on something. And worship of God is the only way to not be worshiping ourselves. It's the only way. Complete submission. And Revelation does this. Only worshipers will overcome. And this lens is what we're meant to see through. So here now we have God is central. He deserves to be at the center. But we do have a problem as usual. Is he actually a better center? So a skeptic would say, sounds good, Carl, but there's got to be a better center. You could quote any number of things that you think is a better center. Is he the best center? Well, here's why. And here's why we fall at his feet. Not just because he deserves it objectively, because, you know, objectively, he could be a tyrant who says, I am king over you, therefore you better bow, or I'm gonna crush you. And he could do that, but he doesn't. And this is why he's a better. Because, let me use this example. If you worship, pick at your center your career, I'm gonna really do well, and the career is gonna help many people, whatever I'm doing, I'm a doctor, scientist, whatever, politician. If that is your center, then You serve it. This is why they call it worship. You sacrifice to it. If your work is your center, you're going to give it. You're going to pay homage to it by giving it your time, your money, your attention. You'll sacrifice your children and your marriage on it. And the hope is that in return for that sacrifice, you're going to get value, meaning, purpose, reputation, money, whatever it is. The only thing that won't eat you alive, says Walls, is God. And the reason is this, because you know what's going to happen with that job? Let's suppose you get downsized then what? What happened to all that? That sacrifice? It can't deliver, you see. Or you're going to achieve everything, and you're going to be like a gentleman who's a CEO of a company I sat with in his basement years ago, and he said, here I am, Carl, surrounded by African art and old wine and all these wonderful things, and I feel empty. Nothing will satisfy. And it's amazing, isn't it? We have a history of men and women who have been gloriously famous and wealthy and successful, Solomon included, who tell us, this is not the answer. And you know what we all say? I don't. I could do better. I know you fell with that money. I know Tiger Woods fell, not me, not if I had it. We are dumb. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. We're not very bright. He is the only center. But let's see the bigger problem here. In this vision that we see, that John sees, there's trouble. Because what's happening at the throne? Thunder, lightning, rumblings, quakes. This is the same thing that we see, all scholars will point to it. It's, the, it's, a, it's a replay of what happened at Mount Sinai in Genesis, or Exodus 19. When God comes down, God is described as kadosh, holy. It's the word that means weighty, heavy. C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. The glory of God, the holiness of God is heavy. Meaning, if I was to be standing on a lake, it's all frozen and I dropped a boulder on it, that boulder will either quake cause the ice to shake or it'll crash right through it because the boulder is more substantial than the ice when god comes down it's funny we think of him as being airy fairy and spiritual spirit and and frothy you know and we are solid but the fact is he is holy you and i are frothy so whenever he comes down in the in the bible there's always quakes lightning storms it's actually a terrible scene here And what he was saying at Sinai is the same thing this throne is saying. Do not approach. You don't get to come here. Not unguarded, not unveiled, not without help. It's a a terrifying scene. It's a menacing scene. And not just that, adds to the fact that there's the Spirit of God, right? Those torches, the Spirit of God is there. The Spirit of God is continually referred to as a fire over and over. Pentecost. When Paul in Thessalonians says, do not quench the spirit, it's the words in Greek that say, to put him out. So he refers to the spirit as fire, burning, consuming. This is all present. So, of course, the question is, if this is God, how can we approach him? How is this a pleasant scene? How are we worshiping this? What, what is, this, what is the, the ease here? What makes him a better center if I can't get to him? You know, at least I can touch the money and the people. So the answer comes in that green rainbow. The green rainbow, of course you hear a rainbow as a Christian, you touch immediately back on Genesis 9, and here's what God says after the flood. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And Charles Spurgeon has still, as far as I know, done the best job of explaining what he's talking about. Charles Spurgeon, that old Baptist preacher from the 19th century. He says, notice the wording, and he's right. The Hebrew, there's no such thing as a rainbow in Hebrew. What it is, is it's a war bow. It's the word used for a bow, like an actual bow. And what he says is, he says, I am going to hang up, retire my war bow in the sky. Meaning, I'm no longer, when I want to crush you, going to shoot at you. I'm going to hang up my war bow. But Spurgeon brilliantly says, but do you notice the rainbow? What direction is it pointing? Up. It's up. So the next time I feel compelled to crush you because of who you are, the arrow will be, will be shot, but it will go up and strike me. I will be struck by it. And so when we see this terrible scene, but it is wrapped in a rainbow, you and I as believers, people who have God at our center, know we can approach with confidence because he has done something to make him approachable. And so this is why we worship. This is why he's a better king, because we don't deserve him, but he's made a way for us to be near him. So that even if I make it the center of my life, I have a good friend who says, my religion is decency. I'm just going to be a good person. Come on. Stop playing with life, because that person who just wants to be a good person is sacrificing, right? They're giving up what is good for themselves to be nice to other people, and that sounds good, until you meet with them for coffee and they get, you realize how bitter they are. How come this person, with more money and time than me, they're doing nothing to help the world but I am? And you see, they become judgmental and bitter, and all of them, now, then you realize they're only being decent because they think they're better. They want to be better. Anything we put at the center will destroy us. Anything. Unless it's this holy God who says, I am your center, and I've made a way for you to come to me. There's no better center. There's no other way. And let me, use, let me really close here. It's an illustration. So how do you get to this point? How do you put Jesus at your center? The only way is I was reminded of this story that Martin Lloyd-Jones, the old Welsh preacher, told. He said, imagine you're traveling, And you come home, and a friend of yours is at your house, and he says, hey, good to see you, but while you were gone, somebody came with a bill, and I paid it. How do you know how to respond to that friend? Well, before, Jones says, he says, before I can respond, I need to know how much he paid. Because if he just paid the postage due on something, then I'm going to thank him and shake his hand. Maybe I'll repay him. But what if he paid a ransom on my life? See, until I know how much he paid for me, I don't know if I should thank him or fall at his feet. And until you understand that Christ died and what he paid for you, at least least a little bit of understanding, you will just thank him and think he's just a buddy of yours. But when you see that he actually took the fiery arrow for you, that he took and sat under the weight of that glory at the throne for your sake, until you see that, you're not going to worship him. You won't. So we must come to this. He took all of it for our sake. And because he took that fire, took that arrow, you can have that sea, the glassy sea. Everywhere in ancient literature, and the Bible included, the sea is always, and storms is, is, is a metaphor for chaos, for struggles, calming the storms. And this storm that we have raging throughout life before God is calm He has made it so that you can not only approach without the throne hitting you, but there's no no obstacles any longer. He has stilled them all for you. And when you see that, your worship will start to look like this. You'll start to ask us questions, and I'm not suggesting anything. You'll say, Carl, how come you didn't pray as much? How come the songs mentioned I more than they should? And although that irritates us worship types, it also is the right question to ask. Are we giving God enough glory? Enough glory. These are questions we have to always be asking but you won't see it until you see the cross. That is all. Let me pray.